0: Open Field Radio, like, subscribe, share, and review, wherever podcasts are found. If I had to describe this, I'd say it's cool people having conversations about agriculture and life, because ag and life live side by side and sometimes overlap. I'm your host, Mark Flint, and this is Open Field Radio, brought to you by Gowan Company. <music> Matt Gregg. New Jersey, Forty North Oyster Farms, Oyster History, Oyster Science, Oyster Farming, and of course, Oyster Eating. We talk it all right now. This is really going to be cool. I'm really looking forward to this. Forty North Oysters, where'd the name come from?
1: Yeah, so Forty North is the degree of latitude that we lo- lie at. That's what um, I thought.
0: That's what I wondered.
1: Uh, it's it's not just that, it's, it's also that... Um, it's the degree of latitude that New York city lies at. And, um, there's a great book called the big oyster by Mark Kurlansky, um, which talks about the history of New York city and how oysters were pivotal in the building of that city and the development of it and how they were a staple product coming out of, uh, You know, Long Island Sound and all of the coastal bays in and around New York
0: City. I know we're just getting started, but I'm jumping in here already because, you know what, after talking to Matt, I bought the book, The Big Oyster, and I recommend it 100 plus percent. It's a great book. It's a fascinating read. I'm actually listening to it. I'm not really reading it, but it's a fascinating book and a great history of New York City, of course, and oysters and America and everything. If you dig history or if you just dig cool stuff, get this book. The Big Oyster, History on the Half Shell by Mark Karlansky. Available everywhere. You'll find it. Now back to the show. Oysters are a huge history in the United States, and I know from uh, looking, digging, reading, trying to understand this a little bit more, uh, it was all but ruined. The industry was all but ruined, correct? Yeah, so... Um, it- we really can't put
1: our finger on one specific thing that led to the collapse of the wild oyster industry. Um, But it, it, in most regions of the country where we had an industry, uh, it coincides with um, post-World War II times where um, there was a big boom in the economy and a big boom in development. And um, to tie it specifically to, to the area that we're in, we're around the Barnegat Bay in in coastal New Jersey. Um, That was kind of the time where the Garden State Parkway was being built. And what that allowed was development to go down the parkway and um, develop all of these areas that were historically uh, pristine marshes. Um, So this is pre uh, Clean Water Act pre um, Endangered Species Act, and we didn't really realize that um, filling a marsh in with concrete was such a terrible thing. Right, um, you right. know, eventually we did realize that, but we basically changed the uh, the chemistry of a lot of our bays and uh, really removed a lot of the substrate that oyster larvae wants to attach and thrive on.
0: All all that all that in the name of progress. Yeah. Right? Yeah, so
1: <laughs> you know, it, it's tough. You you think you're making progress and you've figured it all out, but then, you know, there's all of these side effects and unintended consequences.
0: Amazing. And it's and it's a big piece of American history when you start to dig into it, you realize as you said, you know, it's those economic booms, those growth booms that You look at the pictures of that era and you think, holy cow, well, no wonder it, everything was going like this. Oysters, automobiles, houses, yeah. it was all going 100 miles an hour. How did you wind up in the oyster business?
1: So one of my first jobs was working in a fish market. And, you know, that was at age 13. And I kind of, the fish market that I worked in was right on a river. Um, and it was less than a mile from the ocean. Um, You know, there was... Boats coming in and out, but all of our seafood was coming by truck, which I didn't understand why Why wasn't any of the seafood being landed right at the restaurant. So I kind of dug in a little deeper in my teenage years and went and worked on a fishing boat and became really interested in fishery science, um, figured out that uh, University of Rhode Island actually had a major called fishery science that I, I went and I majored in, um, and in, in doing that, I learned a lot about aquaculture, um, and realized that it was a, um, a a better path for me. Um, you know, I'd been working at the time when I first started learning about oyster farming, I'd been working on, um, offshore cod boats going out for like three days at a time. Um, it was the same time I, uh, you know, I had a, a girlfriend that I had met that I really liked who's now my wife. And, um, you know, at the, at age 20, it was really cool to go out on these boats. Right. It was adventurous and it was fun and it was, it was good pay and you learned a lot. Um, but you know, now being in my thirties, I have a wife, I have a a child, I have a house. Um, it's nice to be able to sleep in my bed at night and (laughs) kind of control my destiny a little bit more.
0: Sure. Um,
1: and I mean, it's, it's, that's kind of the environment that I, that I work in. You know, I was used to going out into, um, deep and dangerous waters offshore and now I go out every day and I'm getting in the exact opposite. I'm getting in, you know, 18 inches of water in a, in a small 24 foot boat and, and walking around and, you know, I'm home for dinner
0: what more could you ask for, right? <laughs> Maybe not quite the adventure as before. But. Yeah, yep. You're listening to Open Field Radio. So here you go. EcoSwing from Gowan USA is an Omri approved botanical fungicide created using proprietary plant extracts. Gotta love it. EcoSwing is labeled for use on many different crops to control powdery mildew, botrytis, monolinea, alternaria, and several other diseases. And it's a global leader in fungicidal control of several key pathogens. EcoSwing makes a valuable Addition to your integrated pest management program. Add another mode of action to your disease control, defense, and combat possible resistance from overuse of other actives. EcoSwing. Always read and follow label directions. From Gowen Company. Open Field Radio. What was the pivotal point for you, leaving the fishing you were doing and moving towards the oyster side of things? Well, I
1: wanted to um, do something inner on the water. I knew that. Okay. Um, I, I was always infatuated with the marine environment. And it's pretty tough to buy a commercial fishing boat and to get in that industry. Uh, you know, it takes a lot of capital. Right. Um, and at the time, I had been doing a lot of research on what it took to enter into the oyster industry. And it seemed like a little bit more of a achievable goal. It just really interested me. I had, I had gone and worked on an oyster farm in college in Rhode Island. And, you know, I loved the work. It was just every day was a different day and it was a lot of fun and it was challenging. And it really piqued my interest.
0: That's super cool. And from there?
1: From there, I I came back um, to my home state in New Jersey. Um, I did a little bit of research. I, I started looking into what it took to get a lease. So a lease is what we call the area that we grow oysters on. We okay. actually lease bay bottom from the state, uh, and that's how it, it that's how it is in most states in the country that have um, oyster or any type of shellfish aquaculture. Okay, you're actually leasing the bay bottom uh, or the ocean bottom from the state, and you know it's an arduous process to get through all of the permitting and everything.
0: I can But imagine. I started
1: looking into that. Um, I, I tried to do as much research as I could. I, I visited as many operations as I could in the area, you know, started actually getting down to the nitty gritty and going and trying to like check out spots and then go to the state and see if they were, uh, you know, leasable areas.
0: So I decided to look this up for myself as if I was going to start my own oyster farm, like that's going to happen. But where do you start when it comes to leasing the Bay Bottom? So I wound up at the New Jersey Department of Environmental Protection. They got a snappy little site that looks like any other government bureaucratic site, friendly, and what it says here is that the Bureau administers the shellfish leasing program, which supports private aquaculture activities via the leasing of the Bay Bottom for shellfish culture. Statewide, approximately 30,000 acres of Bay Bottom are currently leased by commercial interests, primarily for the culture of oysters and hard clams. So, with that, I asked Matt, "How do you start a farm?"
1: So to start at you know an aerial level of of how this industry is governed, um, we have the the FDA, which is a federal agency, and they write what's called the model ordinance. And the model ordinance is a uh, you know a lengthy um, document that has input from the industry and state regulators, and you don't have to adopt that model ordinance if you're a state, but if you, you do, if you want to have a industry of harvesting shellfish, so this this actually regulates um, shellfish farming and the the wild harvest industry, and it's every detail from water quality to um, post harvest handling to cooling the oysters at the facility. It's it's all of the details, so that document goes to the state and then the state names their authority. Um, in New Jersey, it's the department of environmental protection, okay. the DEP. Sure. And they are, they're part of the authority here. And then they have different bureaus within their agency, um, that handle different aspects of our industry. So the Bureau of Shell Fisheries within our, our DEP handles all of the leasing. And, um, in order to get a shellfish lease in this state, and it's pretty similar through most coastal states, um, you have to go through a process and you basically need to prove some capacity that the area that you're looking to grow oysters in is does not have any user group conflicts uh, like recreational fishing, commercial fishing, um, clamming, um, boating, jet skiing, any of that stuff. You don't want areas that, um, are used for other things historically. I see. And then you also want to make sure that there's not a lot of species diversity in that area. So, like the big thing in uh, the Northeast United States that we want to protect is submerged aquatic vegetation. Um, there's two types in New Jersey: widgeon grass and eelgrass. And these are very important species when it comes to the health and ecosystem of an estuary. So we wanna protect those species and not put aquaculture in areas that historically had those two species of of seagrass. The other thing they look at is uh, migratory fish species. Uh, Is it a threat to any endangered species? Um, Are there clams or oysters there already? We basically want to, as an industry, we want to go to areas that are barren Um, and, and don't have species diversity because once we go and we start, uh, an oyster farm in that area, we're actually going to help to bring back some of that diversity just by the existence of the, uh, the structures and all of the small, sessile organisms that will be attracted to the area. We're going to actually, um, create habitat.
0: So kind of a build it and they will come kind of idea.
1: Exactly. And, um, you know, it's been scientifically proven that oyster farms um create what we call essential fish habitat and they uh you know they're great for diversity
0: what happens next the state says yes what happens
1: so after
0: we get through all of the permitting and we get
1: permission from all of the different agencies um there's all different ways to grow oysters um the two primary ways are intensive and extensive So the way that, that my farm grows oysters is we grow them intensively, which means, um, the the difference is we grow them in gear rather than directly on the bottom. Um, so we have to pick out what kind of gear we use. We use all different types of gear. Um, we use floating cages, we use bottom cages, and then we use bottom trays. Um, and those are all, um, basically different stages of the life cycle of the oyster. Um, so once once we have all that gear set, we need to actually get some oysters. Um, so what we do is we go to a, a hatchery and we buy what we call seed. The term seed is derived from terrestrial agriculture uh, terminology. They're not actually seeds. They're actually small oysters, but we call them seed. And usually we'll buy them by the thousand. Um, you know, we might have an order of like 50,000 oyster seed up to, you know, 2 million, just depending on, on what's available um, or, you know, what we plan to, to plant out on the farm at that time. Um, and they're, they're small. They're really small. I mean, we've bought 2-millimeter seed that fits in a, uh, you know, it basically fit into like a cooler you would put your lunch in. Uh, and it's getting shipped through FedEx uh, to our farm, <laughs> and then you know we're putting them in our system. So to rewind a little bit, uh, and this is true for for most agriculture, genetics is really important. Whether you're talking about corn or beef or uh, you know chickens, it's it's really important to have an understanding of. The genetics that you're going to use for broodstock, broodstock being the the parent um, oysters. So, right here in New Jersey, Rutgers University um, over 50 years ago started to develop a broodstock program where they took um, oysters that had survived the crash of the 1950s, and they started to breed them. And what happened is they they started to get an understanding of the, all of the different nuances and, and variable traits of these oysters. And fast forward to today, and we have all these different lines of oysters um, that are conditioned to do well in certain environments. So the, the line that we used is, uh, we use an acronym. It's NEH, Northeast High Survival. And it's conditioned to do well in um, mid-Atlantic states. It's disease-resistant. It grows fast. Um, It's really pretty. It's got a nice um, deep cup and a teardrop shape. And ruckers still, to this day, they'll actually license out broodstock to commercial hatcheries up and down the East Coast. So we actually buy a lot of our seed from a hatchery in Maine. Uh, the hatchery is called Mook Sea Farm, and they're in Maine. So the the broodstock gets sent from Rutgers University to Maine. Um, they're probably starting the spawning process uh, right about now. Usually they'll spawn them in like January or February, and um, then they get little baby oysters that they sell to commercial operations all over the uh, the East Coast.
0: Absolutely fascinating. What's the season for an oyster?
1: So on average, most Northeast oyster farms um, will have an 18-month cycle. That's how long it takes to get a, okay. a product to market. Um, what Our primary site near uh, Barnegat Light, uh, right near the inlet, it's close to the ocean, has uh, it, it's got an abundance of food and it's got really good tidal flow. So the oyster's um, grow really quick. So we usually get an oyster to market, um, on average, probably about 14 months. Now, when you plant a million oyster seed, they're not all going to grow at the same rate. So what we do is we have a, we, and we want it that way because our customer base wants oysters every week, um, so that they can remain on the menu <laughs> every week. So we're basically, Planting our oyster seed um, at about a quarter of an inch. If they're spawned in February, they're going out on the farm at a quarter of an inch. Usually in like early June, and then they'll get through a they'll get through the growing season up in our area. It it goes up to about December um, when the water gets below forty degrees. They go into um, hibernation. They stop growing. So they get through a full winter and then they wake up in the spring and they start growing again. Usually by like July, we start to pick off the cream of the crop. So the the fastest growers were going to skim off the top and start selling them. And, um, at that point you're starting to get some of that, that oyster seed that you planted about 13 months prior, uh, up to like three inches in size. And from that point, it's basically, um, Just like any other farming, you're know, you going up and down rows of livestock, picking off the ones that are ready to go, counting them out. We count them into 100-count bags. We pull them out of the water. We go and we land them, and then they're getting tagged, and they're going out to, to restaurants. Usually, if we harvest on a Tuesday, usually everything's sold by the end of day Friday. And then we start the cycle over again the next week.
0: And round and round it goes the whole season. Mm -hmm. See, now this is getting interesting because just because you plant a million seed does not mean you're going to take a million oysters to market. So what I'm curious is, big or small, are there losses?
1: Oh, absolutely. Uh, Unfortunately, yes. Um, What that loss number is is really the name of of the game when it comes to oyster farming. Mitigating losses, um, getting the product to be quality, uh, the end result to be quality, um, is basically w- we're not just putting them out there and letting them sit. There's a lot of husbandry and work that goes into it. So, you know, on average, we assume that we're going to lose up to 75% of what we plant. Wow! Um, wow. And, and that's, you know, that's a conservative estimate. Um, it's more likely more risk re- realistically around 50% and then, you know, if we have a good year, maybe we'll have, uh, you know, 30% losses or something like that. And, you know, just like anything, you get better over time and the more you do it. So um, we've had some terrible years and then we've had some some good years, just like any farming.
0: Causes for the loss. Is it disease? Is it pests? Is it uh, predators? Is it uh, conditions? It's all different things. So um,
1: there's kind of... Two categories of loss there's degradation of quality, and then there's just the, the oyster dies somehow so um, degradation of quality will come from um, any number of of organisms that we call fouling organisms, so like the one big one that we deal with out at our farm in Barnegat light is a it's a type of sponge it 's called boring sponge, and it will actually It'll burrow into the shell of the the oyster and it'll make the shell uh porous and it'll make it really hard for the for the oyster to be shocked um without crumbling so trying to prevent the oysters from being inundated with boring sponge is a big part of our of our daily routine, and the way that we combat that specific fouling agent is um. Oysters can actually be dried out overnight, and they'll survive. But typically, boring sponge, when it's in its um, early life stage, will not be able to tolerate that. So we routinely dry the entire farm, um, take it out of the water, and dry it um, for 24 hours about once a week in the growing season. It's really heartbreaking to get to where an oyster is uh, marketable in size, and then have one of these um, fouling agents come in and degrade the quality to the point that it's not—it's not either not sellable for what you want to sell it for, or you can't sell it at all. And then the the mortality, just the oysters dying—I mean, it's all over the board. Um, we have um, blue claw crabs love to come in and eat oysters. Uh, we have oyster drills, which are a type of snail that actually eats oysters. We have uh, stingrays eat oysters, all
0: different things,
1: disease. There's so many things out there that, that you know, just like humans, they want to eat oysters.
0: And can you blame them? But what do you do? Do you, do you literally chase them away, shoo away the stingray and the crab? How do you combat it?
1: Like I said, we're, we're what we consider intensive aquaculture. So we have all of our oysters in gear. So that is, um, it's basically serves two purposes to mitigate losses um you know predator protection having them in gear because a, a stingray can't get into they don't know how to get into a, a tray of oysters um and then the other the other purpose of growing oysters in gear is just it's it's easier to harvest and uh you know, have uh, inventories of what you have out there.
0: Open field radio, like share, subscribe more of open field radio after this. So did you know that one female mite can expand into almost half a million mites? That's crazy. But now with advanced onager optech formulation from Gowan USA, you have quick control of immature mites, eggs and prevent females from laying viable eggs and keep your mite population in check Onager Optech delivers translaminar and residual control working in tandem with beneficials to manage successive mite generations. Keep your mites in check. Ask your PCA or distributor about Onager Optech for 2021. Always read and follow label directions from Gowan Company. And now back to Open Field Radio with our guest, Matt Gregg, with 40 North Oysters. Your customers, your customers are primarily restaurants. Is that right?
1: Yeah, so um, I sell through a collective made up of about 13 different independent farms. Uh, The name of the collective is Barnegat Oyster Collective. And when I first got into this, um, out of those 13 farms, I was the first farm and realized that it just was not scalable or feasible for me to go out, run a farm, and then at the end of the week, get in my truck and drive oysters around. So me and a friend of mine, uh, his name's Scott, we um, founded this collective and, and the sole purpose of the collective is to make it so that um, these independent farms can do what they're good at doing, which is growing oysters. And then the the collective takes care of all of the um, the marketing, the distribution, um, the collecting of monies from the restaurants, and mm. handles all of that so that the farms can, can do what's important for them. Pre-pandemic, the collective was selling to uh, about 150 restaurants and probably about 15 wholesalers and then maybe about another 15 just retail markets. Okay. Um, So the big chunk, well over 90% of the oysters are going to restaurants um, for the half-shell market. So now, as we are in this pandemic and restaurants are either closed or at a limited capacity, the collective has tried to pivot and is doing a lot of at-home sales. So, that's been a challenge that we've been trying to figure out is how to sell oysters to the at-home consumer but then also teach them how to handle and how to shuck those oysters. So, that's kind of right eaten up a
0: lot of our time in the last uh 8 months. Well, like everything, everything's in kind of a state of evolution and that's not necessarily a bad thing. But you know, I being the consumer, I look at your product and go, yeah, I would love to have that. And right now, I wouldn't be afraid to go, yeah, send me some of that, mm-hmm. which I think is the evolution of, of things in general. Now, my knowledge of what to do with it once it gets here, pretty limited. Exactly. And that's most people. Yeah. Because you used to buy them in the restaurant. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, ready to go. And, you know, all you have to do is eat it at that point. You know. Right. And I saw, that, uh, I saw a figure that said 95% of all restaurant oysters are farm-raised.
1: Yeah. So um, there's still uh, some wild oysters out there. Uh, In the Northeast, there's still some sustainable fisheries. Uh, Right here in New Jersey, we have the Mullica River, which is productive. It still has oysters coming out of there. There's a family that has been harvesting oysters out of there since I think like the 1840s and they're on their sixth or seventh generation now and they're still doing it. And the reason why that fishery is still there is because they've looked after it. They've made sure that the substrate for larvae to to attach to has remained. Then down in the Delaware Bay in South New Jersey, there's still a wild fishery. Up in the Long Island Sound, there's still one. So there's still... Some wild oysters coming out of the water, but um, the industry as a whole has really transitioned into uh, aquaculture.
0: So educate me about variety. I know nothing about nothing when it comes to oysters. What do I need to know?
1: Yeah. So to talk about the East Coast, from the Gulf of Mexico all the way from Texas, um, and then up the East Coast to the Canadian Maritimes, it's all the same species of oyster. But they're gonna they're gonna have all different looks. They're going to have all different flavors based on the region that they grow in. So it's kind of like it's compared a lot to wine because it takes on the flavors of, of the soil. Um, obviously with oysters, it takes on the flavors of the water, but it's all the Eastern oyster. And then they're, they're vastly different. Uh, the nuances are all over the board in terms of, of flavors based on where they come from. So, a lot of farms are branding their oysters, mostly naming them after the location that they come from. And then people are starting to, to get to know that brand or that variety of oyster.
0: And that flavor and that, you know, I like them from here and more than I like them from over there or whatever it might be.
1: Exactly. Um, you know, the biggest variable that we see and taste is salt. How much salt is in the oyster? Sure. Um, And that has to do with two things, your freshwater influence and your saltwater influence. So how much freshwater is going into the farm? Where is it coming from? How close are you to whatever that freshwater source is? And then on the other end of the spectrum, how much salt is coming in, which is going to be coming from the ocean. So like the ocean is on average about 3.5% salt. Oysters thrive in salinity that is less than that they want to they want to grow in estuaries where we have a mix of fresh and salt water so oysters do well in um usually starting at like 0.8 percent salt and they'll they'll live usually up into like the low three percent
0: and so when you're farming them you have no control over that necessarily do you
1: No, no. I mean, the only way that you control that is just by site selection. The seasonality and the proximity to fresh or salt water is, uh, you know, just a, a natural geographic trait.
0: Fascinating. So now you have an oyster and what do you do with it? You have to shuck it. Shucking is the process of opening that oyster in order to get to the meat on the inside. But how do you do it? It's not easy, and they are tough. You know, in the book, The Big Oyster, we talked about it earlier. Spoiler alert, the author mentions early inhabitants of what is today Manhattan Island used heat to open oysters because they didn't have implements strong enough to do that. Jump ahead to today, thankfully, with a little practice and the right teacher. It's a piece of cake.
1: Teaching people how to shuck has been a goal of ours since the pandemic, and we've been forced to sell to the at-home consumer. So it's not like uh, shucking a clam because oysters vary in shape and size, versus clams are are typically pretty uniform. So you can get really good at shucking clams or opening clams because they all have the same shape. Oysters are different, and you're going to get good at it with a lot a lot of practice. The big thing you need to do is you need to protect your less dominant hand. So if you're right-handed. Okay. You want to hold the oyster knife with your right hand, and you only want to use an oyster knife. You don't want to use anything else. So you want to hold the knife with your right hand. You want to have a glove on your left hand and hold the oyster down, usually against uh, a countertop or a table, cup side down, and you want to get the knife into where the hinge is, the back of the oyster. And um, from there, you're going to wiggle the knife in. It's more like a tool, the oyster knife than a cutting device, and you want to wiggle it into the hinge and pop it open. Once you pop it open, you want you're going to want to separate the top shell um, using the blade of the oyster knife, so that you have all of the meat and all of the the liquor from the oyster in the the bottom shell. You separate the meat from the bottom shell, and then that's what you slurp.
0: And it's that easy.
1: Well, not really. <laughs> another thing we've been trying to figure out is. You know, I've met a lot of people over the years that I've taught how to shuck, and then they had a hard time with it, and they say, okay, I don't want to do this. I'm just going to eat them at restaurants. We don't want to miss out on that that audience, people that are interested in eating oysters, but they are a little scared to try to open them themselves. So we've actually developed this thing that we're calling uh, an oyster roast in a box. And basically what it is is it's a... Um, it's a white cedar box that is made locally. It's, it's from, uh, a local source made by a company, um, really close to us. They're called uh, Hoffman Millworks. They make these boxes for us. We will ship the box to your house with seaweed, ice, oysters, lemon, um, sage, and then instructions. And then all you have to do is you have to take the box, soak it in your sink for about um 60 minutes and then throw it on your grill for about 90 minutes and it's basically oh my gosh. roasting the oysters in the box um you, at at the end of 90 minutes you open the lid and then there you have it. You have roasted oysters.
0: Mind blown. This is the coolest, coolest idea. They'll ship these things right to you. You put them on your barbecue and you're you're doing it. You're enjoying oysters in your backyard. This is amazing. This is what ingenuity and creativity are all about during this time. High five to you guys for persevering and making it happen. This is so cool. I'm going to put a link to this on our website. You'll find it. Openfieldradio.com. Go there. You'll find the link. Get these. Just get some. Come on. Tell me about the conservation side of all of this. Um, I read that there is a big movement right now to really, really, really give back, if you will, to the environment, where the oyster industry is concerned. Of course, the industry all but destroyed decades ago, and now is really on the on the rise, um, but not without a lot of real intentional effort.
1: Yeah. So over the last couple decades, we've realized that oyster populations are pivotal to a, a healthy ecosystem. And there's been a lot of um, interest and work to reestablish oyster populations. And I think what we've realized uh, as a society involved in this over the last few years is that you actually get um, a much better bang for your buck if you're going to um, invest and look into building an actual oyster farm industry the reason being if you put an oyster farm out in the water they're get the, the oysters that are put out there are going say they're gonna serve the same ecological purpose as oysters you that you would be getting through restoration but you're creating more jobs you're creating taxable revenue and then you're creating a product that goes out into the um, into the world and then goes through a number of hands wholesalers restaurants, markets, creating jobs that way too. So there's been a big push for, um, you know, getting more oysters and ecosystems. Our industry has partnered with a lot of um, environmental um, entities. You know, we got a a really great thing going with the Nature Conservancy. I actually go down to Washington, D.C. once a year um, and talk to legislators about the importance of our industry and, you know, how oyster farming can be used as a tool to, you know, alleviate pressure on wild stocks and allow coastal economies to be more resilient.
0: I saw a video online of an organization that actually collects the shells, the oyster shells from restaurants and places like that after they've been eaten to put them back in the ocean. Is that right?
1: Correct. So there's actually a couple different organizations that are doing shell recycling right now. Um, up in New York City, you have the Billion Oyster Project, which is um, it's a an arm of the New York Harbor School. So what that organization does is they actually will go around to restaurants and collect shells in New York City. And then they will actually set oyster larvae onto those shells and then go put them back in the New York Harbor. It, it sounds like an easy process, but there's all these different moving parts to it. And the people that are doing it are the students. And in doing that, they're learning all of these things that are valuable in life. More locally here in our Bay, in the Barnegat Bay, we have an organization called Follow the Shell, uh, which is a partnership between um, a clothing company called Jetty, um, Long Beach Township, which is the the town that's on Long Beach Island, and Stockton University, which is a a college here in, in New Jersey. And the, the township actually has a truck where they go to the restaurants and they pick up the discarded shells and they alleviate the pressure on the landfill then. And then they actually go, they have larvae set onto those shells just like they do up in the harbor and they go back out into
0: the bay onto a reef. So you're right. So many moving parts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so many moving parts. How do people find you? How do we learn more about 40 North Oyster?
1: Um, we're on social media. We're uh, our handle on Instagram is uh, 40, spelled out, F-O-R-T-Y, North Oysters. Um, we have a website. We have Facebook. We were actually in a uh, documentary called The Oyster Farmers, which is available on Amazon Prime. I think you have to rent it for like 3 or $4. You can actually go to com, which is the collective's website, and you can purchase any number of oyster products, uh, you can purchase that oyster roast in a box and we will ship to the lower forty eight states. They'll come full with directions. Uh, we always throw in a free oyster knife if you want it and uh, you know you Love can it. you can experience what it is we're doing by eating our oysters uh, pretty much wherever you're at.
0: Are you shipping across the country? Are people doing it?
1: Yeah, so um, our customer base is mostly local. We are only about a little over an hour to Philly and a little over an hour to New York City. So, you know, this area within 90 minutes drive, we have millions and millions of people. So we have a, a big customer sure. base here, but, um, you know, we do get orders all over the country um, and
0: we will ship anywhere. I love that. Well, let's hope you get more of that. That is fantastic. What's your favorite way to eat an oyster?
1: Oh, I you know, I've, I eat my oysters all the time and I love trying other oysters. and. To really understand the flavor of that oyster from a different area, you have to eat it completely raw with nothing on it. If you don't want it like that, um, there's a a sauce called a mignonette, which is usually a vinegar-based sauce. I usually um, will make one with, like, champagne vinegar, shallot, and black pepper. Uh, You chill it, and then you put a little bit of that on the oyster, and it's, uh, it's really, really good. I love it. What's
0: your favorite thing? What's your favorite thing about oyster farming?
1: Um, I mean, seeing the seasons, you know, right now um, it's about 30 degrees out. The water's like 35 degrees. It's tough getting out there now. But as we get into spring, you're really going to appreciate spring after going out all winter. And then you're going to appreciate summer, you know, after winter too. So I like the seasonality of it. you know, I like seeing the the leaves change. Uh, I like seeing the oysters wake up, and then all of the the migratory fish and the migratory birds that come in in the spring and then leave again in the fall. It's just it's neat to be uh, a part of that
0: um, and in that environment on a regular basis. You've been listening to Open Field Radio from Gow and Company. Like, share, subscribe, review. Everywhere podcasts are found. All rights reserved. No duplication or redistribution without permission.